Good evening, everybody. How are you doing, Mr. Real? I'm doing great. The, the applause came back on there for a split second. I like an encore. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing really great. How are you? I am fine. Thank you very much. Here we are at Mormonism Live. Today's date that we're recording this is February 13th, 2024. You will note if you look at your calendar, that's a Tuesday, not a Wednesday. Because tomorrow, Wednesday, when you will see this premiering, um, it's Valentine's Day. Bill's got a hot date or something, so he wants to go celebrate the occasion. Me, I'm going to try and be in the live chat when this premieres tomorrow night. So hopefully we'll be able to talk back and forth. I've never been able to do that on Mormonism Live. I've never been able to participate in the live chat before. Yeah, that's a problem when you do a live show and there's so many moving parts and things happening uh, to try to keep track of all of it. But folks, happy Valentine's Day to each of you. And I hope you enjoy tonight's episode. I will say of one note, uh, in the YouTube comments down below, the very top one that's pinned is we have a, a new company that we're working with in terms of a newsletter. And so we have added all the subscribers from MailChimp over to the new company. But we uh, would like to, if I can ask for one thing this show, if you'll uh, do behind the scenes is click that link and sign up for our newsletter. We would very much appreciate it. So just down below in the comments, it's the top one. I'll make sure it's there. And uh, looking forward to tonight's show. Uh, this was an interesting conversation. I'll let you set the stage for what it was, but I thoroughly enjoyed uh, listening to it several times. Um, and I'm excited to go through it tonight. I did too. And of course, what we're talking about is Mormons versus ex-Mormons. It was on the Jubilee podcast about 10 days ago. I think it was a week ago, Sunday, that it uh, aired the first time. And there were four people who were designated as Mormons couple of familiar faces there. I didn't know everybody who participated. There was Quakewell on that side. There was also Cardinalis and two others. And uh, on the ex-Mormon side, there was John DeLynn and three others. And I didn't recognize them, but they seemed like uh, they were pretty with it. And let me just tell you up front, the Mormons got their asses handed to them in this debate by the ex-Mormons. There's no question about it. What do you think, Bill? Yeah, it seemed not only did the ex-Mormons have the more reasonable, rational argument, but the believers sort of looked deceptive at times. Um, you can sort of sense that they're playing these apologetic games, and I don't think it actually went over the audience very well. Uh, my hunch is that if you watched it, you would sense that one side is bullshitting you. Yes, and that's because I believe the ex-Mormon side, they're authentic. They are who they really are. They're presenting as they really think and feel and believe. And the Mormons were not. I, I said before, and I'll say it again, okay, it's like there were four people. There's eight people total on the stage, two teams, right? It's like four of those people did not believe the Mormon church is true. And then on the other side, you had the four ex-Mormons. Yeah, right. I said that the way I meant to. Now, obviously, the ex-Mormons don't believe it's true either. I was looking for somebody on that stage to actually defend the Mormon church, but they refused to do that. Instead, they misrepresent what the Mormon church really is, pretend that's the reality, and then try and defend that misrepresentation. I didn't see anybody up there who was actually trying to defend the Mormon church. Instead, even the Mormons. In the answers to questions, 
were trying to distance themselves away from Mormonism writ large as it really is in the lives and hearts of the members who are true believing Mormons and who actually believe what the church teaches. Yeah, and we won't go into it tonight, but I would suggest everybody take an hour out of your life and uh, watch this Jubilee video, uh, Middle Ground uh, on Mormonism, because there is a new convert, a female, who uh, probably does the best job out of the entire believing group at framing Mormonism based on what it really is. Bella. And you could, yeah, and you can sense throughout the entire hour, you can see moments where Cardin or Quaku are pushing back against what she says, or that the believe or that the ex-Mormons are saying something, and you can sort of see her shelf having things added to it just over the course of a one-hour conversation. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Well, the yep. other thing I was going to say was that the graphic that I had up uh, with the cartoon sort of images of of the thing, that's not part of the Jubilee video. That's something we created for our thumbnail, uh, but I would absolutely encourage folks to check it out. What does it say about your faith in Mormonism, where you consistently misrepresent what it is in order to defend it? And if you are successful, finally, in defending that misrepresentation, what have you accomplished? Yeah, it is a strange thing that the apologists really don't want to deal with Mormonism as it is. Instead, they have to create uh, straw men themselves about what the church is in order to be able to defend it. It's sort of the same old game, but sort of turned inward, like, oh, I won't be able to handle what I am, so mm -hmm. I need to tell somebody that I'm something other than what I really am so that I can defend it. I call it a reverse straw man. Yeah. Instead of mischaracterizing the other person's position, you're mischaracterizing your own. Yeah, amen. That's really good. All right, do you want to do this first one? Yeah, we got a bunch of clips. We're going to give our commentary, and we're going to have a lot of fun doing this, and I hope that you will enjoy it as well. First clip, please. Excellent. Here it is. When I think of a, a cult, I think of an organization that's really controlling, and they don't let you exercise freedom or autonomy. They control what you, how you think. They control what you say and how you say it. But if I look at Mormon culture expansively, I don't see people that are controlled. What on earth? Kwaku. How are you doing, Kwaku? You see, once again, he's trying to represent something that's different than Mormonism. He says uh, a controlling cultish type church or organization controls what you think and what you say. Okay, so Kwaku, have you criticized any of the leaders lately? It's wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. Okay, here's what I'd say, Kwaku. Criticism, would that qualify as what you say? And when the top dogs of the Mormon church today, first counselor, first presidency, Dallin H. Oaks says it's wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. Is he not controlling your speech or seeking to do so? When, when you say the church couldn't be a cult because it doesn't do what you said cults do, it doesn't control what you say. Okay, well, it's like we pointed out here, it's wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. You can't speak openly and honestly about your doubts. You, you have to frame them a certain way. 
Um, you're told what you can drink and not drink. You're told uh, what underwear to wear. You're told how loud to laugh. It fits essentially the textbook definition of what a cult is. Uh, one of the things that's often pointed out is Stephen Hassan's bite model. And in the bite model, what is controlled is your behavior. I can think of a, a 50 things about how Mormonism controls your behavior, controls the information. I can I can lay out all the instances, probably a hundred of them at least, where the church has uh, manipulated its history, withheld things, uh, carefully worded things in a way so as to obscure the actual history from the members so that members don't have the full information to make uh, healthy, consensual, informed consent decisions based on. Uh, it controls your thoughts. There are hundreds of thought-stopping techniques in Mormonism. A contention is of the devil is a quick, easy one. Mm -hmm. uh, emotion. You know, you're told that the Holy Ghost is this positive feeling in you, even though it's defined in the same way that uh, Jonathan Haidt would define elevation emotion. Mormonism, in a significant way, manipulates all four of those, behavior, information, thought, and emotion, in a way that most experts in this field agree that Mormonism, at least to a large extent, belongs in the category of high demand fundamentalist religion. What do you do with a mission? I mean, when I was 18, I joined the church. I was expected to go on a mission. I didn't really want to go on a mission. I had just fallen in love with dance. I wanted to pursue that rather than go two years from age 19 to age 21 prime dancing years for anybody who's going to be pursuing that, right? It's a young person's game, in other words. And I went to my bishop and I suggested maybe uh, I don't go on a mission. And he let me know in no uncertain terms, no radio free Mormon, you're supposed to go on a mission. So don't tell me that the LDS church doesn't control what we do. Now the response could be, oh yeah, well you didn't have to. Okay. So does that mean they're not controlling what I do? just because I have this theoretical ability to disobey the bishop, disobey the prophet. And speaking of the prophet, I just want to give this one story. I think it was back in April, General Conference of 2017, when the current president, Russell M. Nelson, told a story in General Conference about a laurel. Of course, she doesn't have a name because none of the laurels in the church have names, at least when they're being talked about in General Conference, <laughs> unless it's Amy. However, she was uh, mentioned as having some kind of championship uh, athletic competition. So she was good enough. She's in the championships. And as it so happened, the championship of whatever that athletic event was, once again, President Nelson doesn't tell us what it was, she was scheduled to do some kind of a task or assignment at a Relief Society meeting. And he doesn't tell us what that task or assignment was. But you know as well as I do, they could get anybody to fill whatever that task or assignment was, for crying out loud. This girl, this Laurel, chose to blow off her championship so that she could attend Relief Society and do whatever it was that, it, that she was assigned to do there. And this was celebrated, it was lauded, it was held up by President Nelson as an example that everybody should follow. Because there is nothing in the LDS Church, no matter how unimportant that is not more important than anything in the secular world no matter how important that is it always has to be the church it's not 
We don't weigh anything. It's just if it's the church, that's what we do. And everything else, forget about it. And we all know what, when you have a member of your ward who doesn't do what the church says to do, we all know how that member does in the ward in terms of functioning. You know, if they don't show up all the time, if they don't, if they don't keep all the rules, if they sort of just go to the beat of their own drum, they sort of get left behind. Oh, there's Brother Jones. I mean, he does help us with the moves, but he never really gets the chance to serve in significant callings. He never really gets the chance to, to you know, we have these stories where if somebody doesn't signal to everyone else that they're going to be a really good Mormon, the rest of the ward sort of recognizes that that's a Jack Mormon mm-hmm. um, because we have our own language for those people who don't compromise themselves in order to fit in the box. Right. Conformity above all. Yeah. The idea that Mormonism is a cult is a pejorative trope that has been an anti-Mormon slur against the church for a long time. And I always ask, by what rubric? You mentioned the bite model before, and I've seen that you've interviewed uh, Stephen Hassan on your show, and he's given a rubric. Well, that same author has called anybody that voted for Donald Trump a cult. He wrote an entire book about the, the cult of Trump. And if you apply any of these bite model methodologies or any of these cult definitions, my show choir in high school was a cult. Apple is a cult. Wait until the next Star Wars movie comes out. It's a cult. That word is used in the same way with the same inefficacy and the inability to back it up unless you use people that unfortunately in your case were not actually being truly Mormon. Stephen Aston would agree that Apple can uh, have some of the traits of a cult or the military or an educational institution or a corporation, but he also has a harm continuum, a continuum of harm. And if you add up all the deaths of, of the People's Temple, of Jim Jones, of, of you know any of the cults you mentioned, it, it won't add up to the number of LGBT youth in the Mormon church that have killed themselves. And so we can talk about just severity of you know children are cut off, some children are homeless because their parents kick them out. Now, I'll admit the Mormon church does a lot of good for a lot of people. But if you just add up the amount of harm, I think that's that's when it goes from just a silly trope to a very serious conversation. Mormonism hinges your salvation on paying 10% of your tithing, for instance. And so you have this uh, thing where most churches are asking for some money. Some churches ask for your tithing. Mormonism is one of the few churches that says not only are we asking for your tithing, but your salvation, your exaltation, your ability to uh, function in this congregation as a worthy uh, uh, person who can hold callings and uh, participate at the most faithful level, you have to pay your tithing. It, it's sort of a crazy thing. I'm, I'm thinking about like how Mormonism manipulates young people into marrying young without really any dating experience, without really getting to know another human being, without really knowing how to even figure out who you are. I'm thinking about sexuality, how you tell young kids that they can't masturbate when masturbation is a normal function of uh, a person growing up, uh, how they handle people who have doubts and uh, questions in the church and how they become second-class citizens. We'll get into women uh, in the LGBT community here in the next couple of clips, 
but Mormonism at every turn says you choose us over your family, choose us over your authentic self, choose us over uh, whatever financial goals you have, choose us over everything. Show up on Sunday, serve at the temple on Saturday, show up on Wednesday nights to help out with this, and then by 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 you know, dang it, come on Saturdays and and clean the crapper too for us, even though we've got two hundred and sixty five billion dollars. The church demands, and and you can play the game, RFM, where I'm not really demanding. You don't have to do it. Well, sure, no one has to do anything. You can think whatever thoughts in your head you want. And you can do whatever you want. But when an organization manipulates you into doing it their way, and you don't really understand the game that's being played because it's manipulated the information too, mm, the odds are sort of stacked against you. And it's why so many folks feel trauma when they recognize that the church isn't what it claimed to be. Yeah. I'm glad that Cardin at least put a tie on and a jacket on to show up at the show. Uh, sometimes the light hits that jacket. It's basically every time he's on. And I notice, I mean, that jacket looks like he got wadded up and thrown in the trunk when he drove to the studio. So not sure what's going on there. Just an observation. <laughs> anyway, what doesn't Cardin he look is like, doing. Doesn't yeah. he look like Matt Foley off of Saturday Night Live? Oh, you know, what? Live, Chris uh, Farley. Oh, yes. I live in a van down by the river. Yeah. I'm, I'm half speaker. expecting him to stand up and pull his pants up from the front and back several times. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's, but you know what? To his credit, it's the sloppy way that all of us Mormons dress nice for Sunday as men. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah, you know the pants are too long, the socks aren't dress socks; they're white socks in our shoes, and our button on our top of our shirts down. I mean, it's it's the game we Mormons play to dress nice for uh, our Sunday best. Yeah, it might be cute on somebody else. However, notice what Cardin is doing. All right. First off, I want to say I agree that having a discussion about whether Mormonism is a cult is a non-starter because pretty much everybody who's left Mormonism would probably think, yeah, it's a cult or it's cult-like. Anybody who's in Mormonism is not going to see that because if you're in Mormonism, it's not a cult. A cult is something that is even more controlling than Mormonism. It's like I say, thank God for Scientology because it makes the Mormons look normal. And that's where they're coming from. But it's it's a non-starter. You're talking about a definition of a word. That's why I think calling it a high-demand fundamentalist religion is much better because then at least you're advancing the conversation instead of having an argument about semantics. And Cardin, what he does, uh, what he tries to do is say, well, everything's a cult. Everything's a cult. So he is going to take this word and drain it of any meaning so that any group of people anywhere can be a cult. And I don't know that that's particularly helpful either as far as advancing the discussion. Yeah, if everything's a cult, I think you said this earlier in the week, if everything's a cult, then nothing is a cult. Yeah, and if and, everything's cute, nothing's cute. Right. And so we have to sit with with some real some sort of real litmus test. And as John pointed out, the way you do it is how controlled are members, how how uh, prevented they are from being able to operate based on their conscience and intuition, their behavior, how they are able to access the full scope of information so that they can make informed decisions about how they'll live their life, how they uh, are, are given space 
to feel normal emotions and not to uh, over-exaggerate what those emotions mean. Uh, so Mormonism at multiple turns controls various aspects of your life, and you don't really know it when you're on the inside. But man, sit down with a hundred post-Mormons and ask them how they were controlled in those four areas of the bite model. So the degree of harm that is done has to mean something. If we're comparing the Methodist to Mormonism, we have to recognize that Mormonism by far causes more trauma and harm and, and, and manipulates people to a much greater extent. If you're going to give up your championship game to give an opening prayer or sing a song at a church meeting, is that super righteous or is that a cult-like mentality? And I think that that depends upon your perspective. Yeah. So although I will not use the word cult to describe Mormonism, I will call it a see you last Tuesday. Yeah, to the point where when Ryan McKnight and uh, Mormon leaks leaked those videos from the church, the politician, like there was an acknowledgement that he was church broke. That was the phrase he used. Yes. Yeah. So when you com when you show the church at the ward level or the general level that you are willing to compromise yourself above all else, then in Mormonism, you can be highly successful. Who was the head of the EPA for decades? Was it Roger Clark? Yeah. Yeah. Who compromised, if allegedly, who compromised his ethics and his integrity and everything he knew was right to do as an investor. And he compromised that and he violated the law because he was directed to by a person he believed to be speaking for God. That's a problem. And that is definitely pretty high up there on the cult scale. And, and I would say one of the biggest things that would identify whether something is a high demand fundamentalist religion, a cult per se, is whether you're allowed to criticize the authorities within your system. And we played uh, uh, the Elder Oaks quote. It's wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. Even if the criticism is true, even if the first presidency uh, entirely broke the law in order to hide its investment funds, you can't criticize. Even if Elder Oaks actually did do electroshock therapy at BYU and he claims that he wasn't there when it happened, you can't talk about it. Even if Elder Holland lies on multiple occasions and you can demonstrate such thoroughly, not allowed to say it. Uh, even if Elder Bednar gets uh, things wrong, you can't go forth in the ward and say, sorry, but that leader teaches false doctrine. You are absolutely controlled in Mormonism by what you can say and not say. Right. And of course, the flip side of that um, is that Mormons believe these people are prophets of God and they speak for God. So of course they would want to follow what it is they teach. But I don't see anybody advocating that position on the Mormon team. The church agrees that no matter like what you are, who you are, and who you love, they're not going to shun you because of that. You might not get the same privileges necessarily, but that doesn't, in the church, Wait, they won't shun you. Wait, what do you mean by privileges? Like, Such as elaborate. like going to the temple, that kind of a privilege. So Yeah, that, but that also is the same for straight people. 
Now, this is one of my favorite moments in the show. There are a number of these moments. That is Bella, uh, the lady in the, um, uh, the blue, I think it's a sweatshirt that she has on, speaking. She's not on the ex-Mormon team. She's on the same team as Cardin. And what she's doing is she's actually trying to tell the truth about how the LDS church operates. And she's doing it from a, a faithful, trying to be sympathetic, defensive side, but she's saying the truth, that if you are gay in the LDS church, you do not have all the privileges. She's saying you don't get shunned. Well, maybe not everywhere, but you don't get formally shunned by the LDS church because you're gay, but you don't get all the privileges. Okay, that is a credible stance to take because it's patently obvious. And now somebody from her own team, Cardinalis, wants to argue with her about that because he wants to take the position that no, there are no privileges in the LDS church that are withheld from gay people that are given to non-gay people, that are given to straight people. There's no difference. So she starts off with a credible position and he wants to argue with it to make it something that everybody knows is not true. What he's trying to do is he's trying to play to the audience who doesn't know Mormonism. He's got four people over there who are ex-Mormons. They know Mormonism. He's not trying to play to them. He's trying to play to the audience who's going to be watching this, who doesn't know Mormonism, like the ex-Mormons know Mormonism. The problem is they're there on the stage and they can call him on it every step of the way. And that's what they do. But I would say, Cardin, here's just a basic idea, okay? In argumentation, in debate, don't argue positions that are patently false. Everybody knows that it's false. It's a wrong position, but you're arguing for it anyway. That's how you lose credibility in an argument. You have to concede the things that are obviously true, even if they hurt you, especially if they hurt you, because then the audience says, oh, this person will concede arguments that hurt their position, which makes them think, and usually rightfully so, that I can take this person's word for what they're going to talk about. They might be incorrect, but at least they're sincere. And this is why Cardin ended up coming off as very insincere throughout this entire episode. And I think he won the prize at the end for the LVP of this podcast, the least valuable player. Yeah. When Bella says what she says in modern moment, 2024, she's speaking the truth that you could be a gay Mormon married to an, another gay Mormon in a homosexual marriage. And it appears as if in 2024, the church will quietly stand by and allow you to show up on Sundays to worship, to go home. But what Bella doesn't get is if we just go back a decade, and especially if we go back three or four decades ago, what she just said is also not true. Members of the church who were gay were sought out, spied on, and persecuted uh, whenever they went out on the town at, at Provo, for instance, at BYU, if they went to a bar or something. Um, they were excommunicated, essentially, as soon as a bishop found out. This is a different standard. So let's grant her credit. In 2024, she's speaking the truth. A gay uh, couple will, for the most part, again, lead a roulette, but for the most part, it sounds like the church at the top is giving them some room to worship without being persecuted. But you can't hold all the callings. She's right. You don't have the same privileges. You can't hold all the callings. 
can't go to the temple. Uh, there's going to be certain aspects of Mormonism where you're going to be treated like a second-class citizen. You're going to mm-hmm. sort of be the uh, person of color in the ward congregation in the 1960s, for instance. That's sort of how you're going to be treated. Cardin comes in and says, no, the game is fair because the standard is the same. And uh, I, I relate this sort of to an analogy. If we were to say, you know what, the NFL rule book is consistent, it's a standard, uh, we're going to allow women to play in the NFL. They just have to meet the standard. We all intuitively grasp that women, because they're not as fast, as strong, as agile, they're not going to be able to compete at that level with men. But the standard's the same. That's the apologetic argument. The standard's the same, but we also should recognize that sometimes the standard being the same isn't the problem. The problem is that the people are different. And so when you look at uh, straight people and gay people, straight people, the standard in the church accommodates their uh, predisposition in every way, right? But the gay person has to be counterintuitive to their humanity in order to make it in the church. So the standard being the same is a problem on its own, but it's not the real crux of the issue. The issue is that you can't take two human beings who are entirely different and then force them into an imaginary box where we say, no, we know for sure, God told us, this is, this is the rules, and make, make people who are uh, diverse and quite different fit into a certain rule book that's made for uh, straight people, straight white people, for that matter, if you take Mormonism in its entire history. Can I give you an example of what would make Cardin right in this argument? If the church held the position that regardless of your sexual orientation, any sexual expression or activity outside a legal and lawful marriage is sinful, all right, then he would be correct. But that's not the way it is. If you are in a same-sex marriage, you do not have, repeat, do not have, Cardin, all the privileges of a straight married couple in the LDS church. So hopefully by showing what the church would have to be like for Cardin to be correct, it helps me understand why it is that he's so wrong. The moment I really shifted on the LGBT issue, RFM, I was being interviewed by John Dillon. It was the first time I was on a show. I was a sitting bishop. I was, I don't know, 31 years old. And I'm trying to defend the church like an apologist would, but I'm also I'm also being honest and authentic, and I don't want to uh, just find Rube Goldberg machines to make it work. I will acknowledge that there are problems, there are issues, and some of them aren't easily solvable, and the critic has a better answer in places. And John, in the conversation, uh, when it got to the part about uh, LGBT and homosexuality, he said, he said, Bishop Rio, let me ask you a question. If if you uh, if if the opposite standard of the church was true, that gay people were allowed to be gay, but me being straight wasn't allowed, the only way I could participate in the gospel and full fellowship was to compromise myself and enter a gay relationship. Otherwise, I couldn't go to the temple. He said, "What would you do?" And my brain immediately said, "I I don't care how much I believe this thing. I'd walk away." It, I, this is an important, my sexuality, my 
is, is a huge part of my humanity. Human beings were making love hundreds of hundreds of thousands of years before we had the ability to tell stories about it, before we had the ability to think a thought of, about the narrative of what that means in our head. Reproduction is uh, as much of a part of being a human being as uh, eating and sleeping. Um, I realized right away, RFM, that I couldn't make that kind of compromise. And it was the moment I stopped in my own life of requiring people who were gay to make a compromise that me as a straight person wasn't willing to make. Very good. Just putting the shoe on the other foot. It can really change your perspective, can't it? Yeah. Do I have to get my hanky out for this one? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. This is, this is the hanky one, so get your Kleenex ready. We could. We could just wave it in non-unison yes. and say things, but we'll just uh, use it to wipe our tears. I have leukemia. My illness will kill me 20 years earlier than Timber. You don't think... You don't think on my deathbed... Forgive me. You don't think that I wouldn't trade a little bit of Timber's gayness for 20 years extra on this earth. So if Timber has a loss of faith because being gay in a hypersexualized world with a law of chastity from the Bible that he doesn't understand, I get that because we live in a cruel, hypersexualized world. But I stare down the barrel of a chemotherapy pill every day that keeps me alive, I will die probably the same time my father does. It, it's a trial and it sucks, but welcome to the club. That's why oh. I, first off, Cardin's only willing to trade a little of his gayness to get rid of cancer. That to me- is, I mean, I know if it was a hundred years, he'd maybe take the whole thing. Maybe. A little gayness, that's worth 20 years. A hundred years, I'll, I'll just be gay, totally. Yeah. There's another game that gets played, and I know you want to say something about this, but crying in Mormonism. I, I learned early on. I joined the church. I'm 17 years old. I learned early on that if I can manipulate, and again, not that I'm insincere. I definitely come to the moment, but Mormons sort of know how to just nudge it a little further, get the tears to come out, and crying just like contention in Mormonism is said to be bad and of the devil. Crying has this automatic association with the spirit. And crying in Mormonism is a thought-stopping technique. It allows you to go, I'm in the right. You need to sit and listen to me. My emotion here means that I've got the Holy Ghost on my side. And it is used as a way to stop the conversation and not allow you to criticize the thing that the crying person is doing. Yes, and you can see the look, I think it was Liz's face. It's just like, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? Because there's this guy who's crying because he has leukemia, you know? And it took him a while to catch on that all he's doing is trying to play him with these fake tears, these fake Mormon man tears that we have all seen in the church. And the problem was when he went over the line and he said, well, but he compared leukemia, cancer, to being gay. And that's when, I think it was lit, no, Jillian. That's when Jillian let him have it with both barrels, right there where you cut it off. 
and told him that is disgusting what you're doing. That was a great job, by the way, Jillian, not falling for his crocodile tears and just letting him have it right on the nose. That is disgusting what you're doing, comparing cancer to um, being gay. And she also said, I don't know, you're probably going to play more of it. I don't need to recapitulate everything she said. But she also said that, uh, what is it? Yeah, being gay is not a trial. Being gay in the church, the Mormon church, is a trial. Being gay is not a trial. Being gay in the church is a trial because of how they treat you and how they see it. Oh, poor Cardin. He just lost his leukemia card. It's a it's a it's a strange thing when you take again we're in 2024 if you take the fact that the church acknowledges that being gay is not a choice they they essentially acknowledge that it is something outside of the control of the person most likely biological genetic epigenetic something along those lines right just in the same way that when I was like 11 years old I'm like you know what I like girls I knew I it wasn't that I something happened to me and I got traumatized and I went, oh, you know what? I, I like girls. And, and you go like, well, OK, look over at the animal kingdom. There are uh, there are like hundreds and hundreds of species in the mammals that have homosexuality in it. You're probably wondering where I'm going. I thought um, you're going to go. You like animals, too. But go ahead. No, 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 no. I, so <laughs> so um, when you acknowledge that animals who don't have the same sort of awareness that human beings do have homosexuality among their species as well. Penguins, kangaroos, whatever. You sort of just have to stand back and go, you know what? It seems like that's a normal way that a minority of tons of species show up in the same way that some people are left-handed and other, and most of the population is right-handed. And anytime in the history of mankind, when somebody has been different and had less ability to influence decisions, those in power and authority chose to marginalize those people. Look at the Old Testament, left-handed people are marginalized. Look, throughout world's history, women are objectified and become second-class citizens. Look in this country uh, from the you know, 1700s to the 1960s, and you look at like the civil rights movement and people of color being a minority and marginalized. Um, we're just now getting around to the part where Mormonism is having to shift and sense that being gay is just another normal expression of being a human being. Hence, you have to make room for it. And what Cardin doesn't want to do is to acknowledge that the um, odds are stacked against the LGBT member by the standards by which the church plays by. By the way, it just occurred to me, this is a tactic that Cardin uses. I mean, it's obvious this is a tactic, but I remember back when I was having my debate with the Midnight Mormons in November of 2021, he did the same thing. It wasn't about his leukemia. It was about his daughter or something. No, no. He was talking about, um, oh, who's the guy who, um, okay, there's Quaker, there's Cardin, and there's Brad Whitbeck. Thank you. Brad Whitbeck's daughter in the hospital. It had nothing to do with what was going on, but he start, starts emoting about it as if somehow that is an argument against what I was saying. Yeah, I um, I, I think I think about my mom who died of cancer. She was 59 years old, and she suffered for uh, 
a few years at the end of her life, but most of her life at the end even was good. She was still working, but she had, you know, a time there at the very end where things got really rough. And having watched that firsthand, absolute tragedy, but I think living your entire life compromising a large chunk of your humanity, in my mind, is significantly harder. So not only is Cardin wrong by equating a disease with being gay, that that on its surface is already a horrible analogy, but also to say like, oh, we all get trials. Well, yeah, like somebody's born without an arm, but are you going to say like being born without an arm is like being gay? That that doesn't seem like that's uh, an equal analogy to make. Well, maybe some people are born in third world countries where they uh, are starving to death. Okay. Are you saying that being gay is like being in a third world country and starving? to See, no matter which way he goes with that, mm-hmm. it's his inability to just sit with what being gay really means and the, and the challenge it is for the person, not a challenge given to them by Heavenly Father, but the challenge, as she put, of being gay in Mormonism when everything about its theology and its structure says that straight is what we based everything on. He, he starts from the get-go having a bad foundation in the argument. Yeah, one might respond to Cardin by saying, look, everybody dies. Nobody gets out of this life alive. And regardless of when you die and when I die, the fact is, if you've got leuke- leukemia, you can go to the temple and make the covenants necessary to be exalted. Anybody who's gay doesn't get to do that, Cardin, no matter how long they live. Yeah. Um, the church, when it first came out with its website, it was Mormon, mormonsandgays.org, right? I remember, yeah. Because you either you either could be Mormon or you could be gay, but you sure as hell couldn't be both. And as you point out, to be Mormon, we might be heading into a new space where what I'm saying 10 years from now is incorrect. But as of right now, in the majority of the church, you can't be gay and a fully faithful, participating, salvation-achieving Mormon. Right. Yeah. You cannot. No. All right. You ready for the next one? Mm-hmm. And this is Timber. Now, he's on the Mormon team, right? He's a, a faithful Mormon who is also gay. So will Mormon Heavenly Father keep her out of the celestial kingdom? If she, she continues to have gay relationships? Well, he's not the Wait, I asked him. I am saying that has That's a yes or no. That's a yes or no. Do I believe that Heavenly Father would keep her out of the social kingdom if she if she continues to have lesbian relationships through the through her entire life and doesn't, I, and doesn't repent for them? I yes, I believe yeah. that yes, but but he'll you, keep her he'll keep her out of heaven. Celestial no, kingdom. Celestial no, kingdom. Celestial kingdom. Yes, we all have a standard that we need. She to won't be able to live with her family forever, which is the Are Mormon promise. No, but that's that's because the, that's because the doctrine of eternal life. Hold on, hold on. Keep going. I mean, I yes. Yes. Yes, finally. Yes. And and John DeLynn did an admirable job of cross-examining Timber there. And the host did a great job of shedding Cardin up, who wanted to impose himself. He got he has to impose himself. The guy on his team is in trouble. John is leading him to an unacceptable response, which is a truthful response, which is that no, gay people don't get to go to heaven in Mormonism. Okay? And even so, even so, Timber who's actually giving the honest response had to be dragged to it, kicking and screaming. Did you see all the caveats and all the places he's trying to get off the, on the off ramp, right? Get me off this freeway. Cause I see where it's going. And John had said, so they can't go to heaven. And he goes, Oh no, they can go to heaven. 
you know, this whole thing about, oh, well, heaven is something other than the celestial kingdom because there's three heavens, blah, 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 blah. So let's dive this. Let's distract. Let's divert. Let's try and get away from what the question is really asking. Also, good job, John Dillon, saying it's a yes or no question. And finally, after taking everything off the table and doing it in quick order and not allowing uh, Timber to get off the hot seat and scramble away, he finally had to admit the effing truth. Why are none of these people, by the way, Bella may be a little bit different. Okay, so, but as far as Quaku, as far as Cardin, as far as Timber, which we just saw, they are not there to defend Mormonism. They are there to try and avoid talking about what Mormonism really teaches, and they will only admit it when they are forced to. It reminds me of the earlier segment when Cardin comes in and says the standard uh, is the same. The standard isn't the same. A gay person who who follows what their their inside of their humanity tells them to do, which is to 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 be attracted to, to marry, to participate with a person of the same gender as them. That's that's what they're interested in. As Timber put it, if you do that. You do not get to the celestial kingdom. And it reminds me, too, of Marky Peterson, because there's this game that Mormons play about you get to go to. Oh, they get to go to heaven because Timber could have probably gotten away with going. No, no, no. They can get to the celestial kingdom, maybe even. Right. Mm -hmm. Because Marky Peterson said at one point that people of color could get to the celestial kingdom, but they would get there as servants. Yeah, they live downstairs in the servants quarters. Being a slave in the celestial kingdom is not heaven. It's not heaven for anyone who is in that role. And so if you say, well, gay people can get to heaven, but they just can't enjoy all the blessings of exaltation, then they're not in heaven. They're a second-class citizen still. And and the standard isn't the same because the standard is that people within the rules of consent, again, we're not, you mentioned animals earlier, animals and children are off limits because we all intuitively, not all of us, because there's a few uh, odd ducks out there and they end up Uh, getting themselves in trouble and being behind bars. But generally, we all intuitively gather that consent is an important principle, that you should be allowed to live your life so long as you don't violate and harm other people. Right. And folks who are gay or lesbian should have equal, should have the same standard. Cardin's wrong. It isn't the same standard. The standard is that both parties, straight or gay, have the ability to have a healthy pursuit of a sexual life within the rules of consent and not harming others. That's the standard. And like you said, when that standard is the same, then we can actually say that. Right. Can you name the woman that is the Relief Society president over the whole church? I, I, I know it was Jean B. Bingham. I don't know who it is right now. I'll be honest with you. I definitely think that men and women are treated very differently. With that said, I can't name wait, the 12 wait, apostles. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I can't name the 12 apostles. So and yet I, you could name probably the first three, President Nelson and his counselors. I, I could name the prophet, yes. Okay. So what do you think about bullshit. that, Bill? I call bullshit. Cardin Ellis knows he can name the first presidency. See, this is where... This is where it is absolutely demonstrable, because if he can't name the first presidency, then he's the shittiest Mormon that there is, and he shouldn't be on the stage anyway representing it. Every Mormon who's going to represent Mormonism 
has the ability to name the first presidency. Cardin is lying to you. Cardin is lying to everybody on that stage and he's lying to everybody who's going to watch it because he knows that he has to sort of obfuscate the issue. He has to create a straw man because it's the only way that he could tackle it. He knows President Nelson. He knows President Oaks. He knows Elder Eyring. He could name those no problem. You and I sat here yesterday and said, hey, just for shit and giggles, let's see if we can't name the 12. Mm -hmm. And we were able to within about three minutes. It took us about an extra minute to get the last two. Mm -hmm. um, but we named all of them. Right. With no notes, with no Google. Nope. Because so we, we pay attention. And that's just it. Cardin, are you acknowledging that Bill Real and Radio Free Mormon know Mormonism better than you? Because by saying you couldn't name the first presidency, that's you would be acknowledging that you know less about Mormonism because you don't even know your own leaders. You don't even know your own prophets, seers, and revelators that, that we do. And again, I don't buy it for a second. He knows them. And I bet he could name at least eight out of, the, out of the 12 apostles if the problem was posed to him differently. Cardin, we'll give you $300 if you can name eight <laughs> of the 12 apostles. And suddenly yeah. his brain would work perfectly in spite of the leukemia and he'd be able to name them. Oh, yeah. And so just framing exactly what he's doing, which I think you've done a good job of, what is, what's happening is the uh it's liz i think who asked that very good question can you name the president of the pro uh excuse me the relief society right now and he couldn't frankly i couldn't either i mean quaku goes with a past president I, bingham i think he comes up with i could go with barbara smith because she used to be the relief society president but that's not really the question is it we're asking who is the relief society president today he doesn't know so therefore, he knows what the point is she's making. It's obvious. So now he's going to dissemble, which means lie, and pretend like he doesn't know who the counselors in the uh, first presidency are. But he tries to change it and make it, well, I couldn't tell you who all the apostles are. Well, that's not the question, Cardin. The question is, do you know who the president of the church is? And do you likewise know who the president of the Relief Society is? The answer is no. And does that mean something about the equality with which women are viewed in the LDS church? He doesn't even want to get to that point, even though he knows it's true. So he's going to lie about it. And he's going to make himself look like either an idiot who doesn't know his own church or that he's just lying in order to try and avoid dealing with the issue. This is what Cardin does over and over again. He dissembles in order to avoid dealing with the issue that's being raised. That's that's really one of his main tactics. I wanna say kudos to Kwaku, both with the LGBT issue and with women. Kwaku, by the way, the way this debate worked, I think this is important, is it wasn't really split in uh, ex-Mormons and Mormons. It was really an issue was taken and the people who agree with this side of the issue and the people who disagree with this side of the issue. And so there were opportunities for Mormons to step forward on the what you would normally expect to be the ex-Mormon side. And there was opportunities for the ex-Mormons to step forward on the Mormon side. I don't know mm -hmm. that that ever happened, to be honest. It did. It did. But, the one, but I did notice that on two occasions, both with the LGBT issue and with uh, the feminism issue, Kwaku came forward as representing or agreeing with the ex-Mormon side of the issue.
mm-hmm. um, that he essentially is looking forward to the church progressing and adapting and being more uh, liberal and uh, having more equality, both with um, gay and lesbian folks, as well as with women. Uh, and I thought that was really cool. Um, I did too. It just occurred to me, this is what Cardin is. He's the kid who's playing chess with a friend and he's losing. So instead of just losing graciously, he upends the board and throws the pieces all over. Yeah, that's but then pretends does. it's oh, an accident. But then pretends it's an accident. Yeah, that's what he does over and over to try and avoid dealing with the issues where he knows he's getting his ass kicked or will. So he tries to throw the entire uh, game over so that it stops everything and he doesn't lose. That's his way of not losing is by upending the board and throwing the pieces everywhere. Cardin, can you really not name the first presidency? And if that's, if if you recognize as well as everyone else does that what you said wasn't true, your credibility, like, like think about that for a moment. Your credibility is absolutely shot. It is. Either you you're lying it. and we shouldn't believe you, or you don't know anything about what you're talking about. So why should we listen to you? I'll give you Either a hint. Way. It's an acronym. One, O-N-E, Oaks, Nelson, Irene, even Radio Free Mormon can do it. Must I teach you this? Yeah. It Again, building a straw man about your own beliefs so that you don't have to suffer defeat at the hands of the people who are uh, kicking your ass from one side of the room to the other. All right. You ready for the next one? Yes. Oh, and by the way, once again, when he sees either uh, like Timber, he, Timber's about to lose for his team, so he wants to throw over the chessboard from across the room. He's not even involved in that game, but John DeLynn and Timber are having that conversation. He wants to run over and throw the chessboard over and thank goodness for the moderator says, no, 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 no. You're not involved in this. A kid, a kid can sit in church and see who is in charge. Mm. A, A child can. I think it's a great point, by the way, a child, if you were to ask children, who's in charge in this church, men or women? Every one of them is going to go, men, men are in charge here. Um, it, it, it becomes so uh, observable to the most innocent among us who are, haven't been clouded by having to give off apologetics or uh, crazy explanations and a bunch of mental gymnastics. Just ask the children who's in charge. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they know it's, again, intuitive. They understand it. Men are in charge here. Yeah. What is the most important part of sacrament meeting? Well, we understand it's the sacrament. Who blesses a sacrament, men or women? Who passes the sacrament, men or women? Who gets to approve whether the sacrament prayer was said correctly so that the sacrament can be passed, a man or a woman? Men are totally in charge. Yeah, and that's just at the local level. Now you start asking the kid, who who gets to hear God's voice and give it to all of us? Men, right? Like at every level, Men are in charge mm-hmm. and children can see it. I thought that was a great point to make uh, that she made there. Yeah. And what's funny is it's all of the white men who are telling us why. It's always the white men who are telling well, us I'm, where our level is. It's I, the white men who are saying, oh, no, you have equal priesthood, but you can't sit on the stand. You can't pass a sacrament. You can't bless people, can't baptize people. I'm what sorry, but that that was that is a Judeo multiracial a biblical teaching that wasn't just instituted by white men that you may disagree with it and that's fine sexist nonetheless you may disagree with it but the the fact of the matter is is that there always is someone who presides okay and the scriptures say that the one who presides in the household is the man but presiding doesn't mean is higher than okay or has more power over 
There's a okay. weird. Yeah, go a ahead. couple things. You want to say something about preside? N um, Since preside... he has it absolutely wrong. By the way, I think that Timber is trying to be more authentic than Cardin. It may not be saying a lot, but I think he really is trying to be authentic here. He's trying to actually stand up for what the church does teach, but he doesn't own it by saying this is what God has revealed through his prophet. He tries to pawn it off on uh, the Bible and suggests that Mormonism is no different than any other church that's based on the Bible that takes some of its passages literally about women not speaking in church. I mean, honestly, Timber, if you're going to go with the Bible, women shouldn't even be speaking in church. The Mormon church is violating those scriptures from the Bible by letting women preach in church and teach anything in church. So I think it's a, a bad idea to try and link it back to the Bible. Just if you believe the church is true and it's led by a living prophet, why don't you just say so? And that it is God's priesthood and God can give it to whomsoever God wants. And up to this point, it doesn't look like he's interested in giving it to women, but it's his priesthood and who are we to judge him? Now, I don't find that argument persuasive, but at least it's coming from a faithful perspective. Yeah. I First off, when she says white men, she's actually sort of right, but they sort of throw, you know, Timber throw, kind of throws uh, some pushback at that. But I would say, instead of saying white men, let's say privileged men who almost throughout history have always been white men, right? The idea well, of tying At least in, in Western culture. Yeah. I'm sure there are privileged people in non-white cultures as well. Totally. But we're talking about the Mormon church. Mm. And we're talking about the history that it bases itself in when uh, it was white Nephites who were in charge. It was- That's just symbolic, Bill. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was white men. <laughs> By the way, can I just say something about that? I think we get to yeah. that later, too. But that's a ridiculous argument. And we'll, and we'll show why there's actually parts in the Book of Mormon that make that an impossible interpretation. But um, so privileged men wrote the rules. And what they what Timber tries to do is go, look, you can't blame the LDS church. This is God's standard. Go to the Old Testament. Go to the New Testament. This is God's standard. But. In the Old Testament and New Testament, there is also racism, which we now disavow. So you self-admit, the church admits in 2024 that the scriptures aren't perfect on these issues. That anytime someone's being marginalized, you can't exactly go back to the scriptures and say, well, God marginalized marginalized him in the scriptures, hence it's okay for Mormonism to do it in the present day. That's not a real statement. Does that make sense? Well, um, it was on, on, under the priesthood ban. I remember... Uh, being an apologist and trying to defend that, though I joined the church the same month it ended. But it was still an issue. It's still an issue today, as you know. But of course, and it will be brought up by Timber. Well, God discriminated against everybody who wasn't of the tribe of Levi. They didn't have the priesthood either. So once again, it's this appeal to the Bible. It's the idea of two wrongs make a right. And if God discriminated against one people in the Bible, it's okay for him to discriminate against another people today. Yeah, and, and he says presiding doesn't mean more power over another. Yet, presiding means that in the way the temple used to be done, again, I agree it's not there now, but just a few years ago, women had to promise obedience to their husbands, and their husbands promised obedience to God. Presiding in Mormonism absolutely means 
that men have the power and authority over the family, over the home, over the ward, over the church. Yeah. To say otherwise is ridiculous. Hang on a second here because I was looking it up and I just had it up here. Yeah. Looking up the definition of preside. Guess what it means? It means to be in the to be in the position of authority. Yeah. In a meeting or other gathering. And this was unfortunate for Timber because he ended up saying preside doesn't mean to be over somebody when actually the word preside does mean that. And he's quoting it from the proclamation on the family. So, yeah, it says the father presides in the home. That's not equality. Preside means you are over in authority everybody else in the home, including the wife. It's built into the word. The word was chosen carefully. That's what it means. I actually got a question for you. I got a question for you girls. Um, the division, oh, okay, so this this always atrophies into a priesthood argument. Um, but do you think it's possible to have equality with a division of labor? Or would equality be achieved in your mind with women receiving the priesthood? And then I have a follow-up. This just came to my mind. This isn't a gotcha. But what would satisfy your definition of equality? Must the women be given the priesthood? And that's the, the hill we're dying on here. Or is there any other definition that would satisfy you? He says division of labor yeah. as if that solves the problem. It's not just a division of work. It's a division of who got to assign the work. Mm. That makes a big difference. If you go, mm -hmm. well, there's a division of labor. The slaves, mm. the slaves go ahead and pick the cotton, and I, I tell the slaves what to do. There's a division of labor. Right. Or the Div Chinese are out building the railroads, and the people, the bosses are in their in their offices directing the work. It's a division of labor. It's all necessary for the railroad to get built. So obviously, they're equal. Yeah. So he asked, what would equality look like? And here's what I wrote down. I wrote down, the opinion of females matters as much as the men's. The women have as much influence over how the church operates and what it decides to do and not do. It made me think of the family proclamation in uh, Ozaki. Was, the, was that the name of the sister yes. from the Check Relief go. Society presidency? Check Ozaki. And she made uh, a note uh, out loud, I think at Sunstone or somewhere, she she commented out loud that the women were not consulted at all. The Relief Society was not consulted at all, in spite of the fact that it was at a Relief Society meeting that was hijacked by Gordon B. Hinckley in order to announce the proclamation to the family, proclamation mm -hmm. on the family to the world. Um, so that the women have as much influence over how the church operates and what it decides to do and not do, that females have as much opportunity to lead and be seen leading <coughs> And I'll borrow what, the, uh, what was said in the last uh, segment, that a child in the pews would struggle to sense who is more important because it looks to them to be balanced and healthy and fair. And then this one sounds extreme, but it's the truth. The scriptural canon used by a particular religion would be represented by both male and female voices and perspectives. That's very good, Bill. I think that what Cardin's doing here is he's doing another tactic and he's trying to get off the defensive and get on the offensive by asking a question. I think he got a little bit of traction with this because I, I'm not sure that the people on the other end of the question knew how to respond in the moment because it was unexpected. But honestly, this is not rocket science, Cardin. Equality should not be that difficult to figure out. It means that whatever one sex can do, the other sex can do 
as well. Why is that so difficult to understand? And I also thought um, it might have been brought up that if you have a ward that is completely populated by men, there are no women in the ward, just men, that ward can function at full capacity. You're not going to have a relief society, but it's a, that's why they call it an auxiliary, right? It's like your appendix. You can cut it out. You don't really need it. So a ward can function. The church can function at full capacity with nothing but men. But if you have only women in a ward, that ward cannot do anything. It can't have any ordinances. It can't have any meetings because there's nobody who can preside because you have to have the priesthood to preside in a meeting. It is dead in the water. And that alone should help even Cardin understand that women are not equal in the Mormon church to the men. Yeah. And I'll go back to what I said in the beginning. Who divided up the division of labor? If one side got to decide for the other side how the division of labor is divided, then things are not equal. And that story you gave about Chieko Ozaki back in 1995, I think it was the October General Conference and the women's session, they already had everything all lined up. They had all the speakers. And then Gordon B. Hinckley says, we've got to get this pronouncement out here because we're going to be attaching it as an exhibit in the appellate case where we're seeking to have standing over in Hawaii on the issue of gay marriage. we got to get it out now. We, who are the guys who have every single other session, we're not going to change our program at all to introduce it in one of the general sessions or in the priesthood session. No, you women who have one session, you've got to rearrange everything in order to do what I, the man, tell you, the women, to do, and they did it. And they weren't happy about it. That much was clear. But they did it. Why? Because they're not equal to the men. Yeah, it reminds me of the recent effort to tell the women to get off the stand. Again, it goes back to that earlier question of whether Mormonism is a cult or not. Um, the amount of control, the amount of manipulation, the amount of influence that's extended, uh, it's spoken of a little bit on this issue as well. There's scriptural precedent for it changing. And one of the most beautiful aspects of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the fact that we have and rely upon modern prophets and we take what they say seriously and look forward to that prophetic revelation. But at the end of the day, um, we still have to go home and get that same revelation. We have to get that same answer from God directly from him that dovetails with that revelation so that we know in our core that um, that is what God wants for his children. Uh, we don't have a static God. You know? I just I disagree there because God is unchangeable, as it states in the scriptures. The the there are eternal principles that are eternal. They they never change, but how those principles are applied can change over time. But the the eternal principles remain the same. Period. If we don't have any object objective, solid, eternal truth, then everything is relative, and relativity leads to chaos. What I love about this part is where you have two people on the same team, the Mormon team, who are disagreeing with, with each other because they're arguing about which misrepresentation of Mormonism should be believed. 
Cardin is going with the misrepresentation that the prophet says things, but it doesn't really mean anything until we go and we get a revelation from God that confirms that what the prophet said is true. That's BS. Because the primary song is not follow the prophet and then go get your own. Only if you get your own revelation that says that what the prophet's saying is true. It says follow the prophet. Follow, you know the song, right? And so that that's that's total BS. And we also know that if we didn't know it before, when Elder Oaks, I it was in one of those uh, face-to-face devotionals with the youth that we covered, where he talks about some young woman, once again nameless, coming up to him and talking about her parents with him and saying, my parents got a revelation that they don't need to go to church on Sunday and they don't need to pay tithing. That's their personal revelation, right? That's the one that Cardin's supposed to be talking about. And what President Oaks said was, he related that he was talking to this girl who'd given him this information about her parents saying, well, I don't know if they received a revelation, but they weren't getting it from the right source. That's what happens when you get a revelation that's different from what the prophet tells you. It's from Satan, okay? There is only one approved answer to get when you're praying about what a prophet's told you, and that's that the prophet is right. That's why they call him the prophet. So that's the misrepresentation that Cardin wants to be advanced. Meanwhile, Timber comes back, and he wants to have the, the old trope about, well, it's only policies that change doctrine never changes. So he wants to get into that whole debate, which is absolutely ridiculous. And John DeLynn, I don't know if you have it there, he points out to him, Black's in the priesthood. You see, this is why Cardin went the way he went, I think, because he knew that to go the way that Timber went opens itself up to all the different times when the church has changed its doctrine, including the 1949 First Presidency statement that said, Black's not having the priesthood is a doctrine and not a policy. It actually makes the distinction. It's not a policy. This is a doctrine. And John DeLynn threw that up in uh, Timber's face. So Timber's trying to say that anything that changes, well, that's a policy, and doctrines never change, which led to my recent definition that came to me one night of what doctrine means in Mormonism. In Mormonism, doctrine is just an unchanged policy. Yeah. That's pretty good, RFM. Um, did I get that right or did I get it backward? Doctrine is just an unchanged policy. I think that's true. It's all doctrines oh, right. are right. policies. Yeah, I did get it right. Yeah. yeah, because they're all policies in embryo, right? Mormons believe that we're all gods in embryo. Well, all of its doctrines are policies in embryo. Yeah. You pointed out the Elder Oaks saying that essentially any revelation that's gotten that doesn't align with the uh, standing of the church is coming from the wrong source. So you're allowed to go pray. You're allowed to go get your own answer. But sure as hell, that answer better align with our answer. Otherwise, you're wrong, which means really only one answer is allowed. Which means it's meaningless. Yeah. It's absolutely meaningless. It is yeah. fluff, and it, and that's why people don't pray about crap that the prophet says. Why would you pray about it? That seems meaningless when you're only allowed one answer, and that's that he's right. You just follow him for crying out loud. Yeah, and Timber's I've never a- actually heard somebody. I'm sure it's happened, but I've never heard somebody credibly tell me that they actually prayed about something the prophet said, and it was true. Why would you pray about something the prophet said, unless you were disposed to not believe it? 
And if you're disposed to not believe it, maybe that's the voice you should listen to instead of trying to change your inward voice, i.e. your conscience, to align with what the prophet said that's going against your conscience in the first place. Yeah, and then Timber says eternal principles don't change. But my son was over the other night, and I was listening to this preparing for today's conversation with you. And my son said, man, I watched it, Dad. It was, it was, that was so good. And we were watching the part where Timber said that eternal principles don't change. I said, Will, I said, all I'd have to do is have a few minutes with Timber and I'll say, Timber, name for me five things that you are absolutely certain are eternal and would never have changed in the, in the church. And you and I both know that if somebody sat down and tried to make the effort to name five things that have never changed, you would be hard pressed in Mormonism. So you'd have to, Timber would have to, by the end of the conversation, self-admit that the church doesn't have anything that's eternal, non-changing, God's consistent, he doesn't move or budge. Everything's changed. Go read Charlie Harrell's book, This Is My Doctrine. The very nature of who is God, who is the Holy Ghost, how the atonement was made, uh, whether Christ was married or not married, whether he's a polygamist or not whether people of color will only get the priesthood after the millennium and every white person's already gotten it, uh, whether, uh, you know, everything in the church has moved and shifted. You could probably come up with, well, Jesus Christ made an atonement. Okay. One, um, the sacrament is important. Okay. Two. Yeah, again, really you could, principle. yeah, but that's the point. You could, you could name all this fluffy, ambiguous stuff, but the moment you get into the nuts and bolts of what prophets have declared to be eternal, everlasting doctrine, it has all changed, all of it. Hence, these guys are useless to know what the truth is because they've never been a good standard for staying consistent on any of it. Yeah, principles are things like forgiveness, honesty. Honesty, Bill, is the church consistent in the principle of honesty? Nope. No, that's what we're supposed to be as the members. The leaders do not hold themselves to the same standard and the same principles that they preach to us. By the way, I just thought of this other story. I want to throw it in here. It's kind of going back in there about controlling people's lives. This just happened, and I just heard this story. And I don't want to say who it was who told me this, so I'll just say it was a young woman named Amy who told me this story. Anyway, Amy said that uh, there was a, somebody in her family, right? A married couple, they're around 60s, and the husband dies prematurely. And that was very, very unfortunate. He's going to have his wedding. What day of the week are weddings held in Mormonism, Bill? Uh, that's going to be Saturdays, not Sunday. Yeah. It's always going to be. It's never, never a Sunday. No, it's always on a Saturday. I suppose it could be a different time. But it's customarily on a Saturday. And I bring that up because another very closely related member of that family, I mean by blood, after the husband died, told the surviving wife, don't have the funeral on a Saturday because I have an assignment to work at the temple on Saturdays. So now you have Tuesdays available. Now you, now you got to do it during a weekday. This is Mormonism in a nutshell. Yeah. This is Mormonism in a nutshell. Going to work at the temple is more important than attending your daughter or your sister's husband's funeral. And that has to be arranged in such a way as to not have it on the normal day when everybody else has their funeral in the Mormon church on Saturdays. It's 
got to be on a different day. I think it ended up being on a Thursday or something like that. Why? Because she has an assignment to work at the temple. And so everything else has to revolve around that. I just want to say too, Timber, if you happen to see this, I don't expect you to, but if you happen to see it, surely you're not saying that only principles are eternal. Like you said, RFM, faith, repentance, uh, kindness, honesty, because if you reduce the true and living church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the only true and living church with which the Lord is well pleased, to just fluffy principles, and you self-admit that everything else is changeable, mm-hmm. then you really don't have anything anyway. Why are you a member? Yeah. It has it in common with every other, I can't say every other religion, every other Christian religion, probably Judaism, probably pretty much any religion that wants to instill principles that help you be a better person and lead a better life. Yeah, the sacrament prayer hasn't stayed the same. The way in which the members knelt or stood for the sacrament hasn't stayed the same. Mm -hmm. Everything about the church has changed. Nothing is eternal. Right. But this is one of those tropes that people go to, right? Policies never, no, doctrines never change. Policies do change. And the way we know that a doctrine is a policy is when it changes. Yeah, and in fact, I don't have it handy, but there's a quote from Elder Oaks where Elder Oaks says it would be impossible to differentiate between doctrines and policies. Yes, I remember Uh, And for the same reason that you and I are saying, because all that means is that it hasn't changed yet, but it could very well change in the future. Mm -hmm. So there's no way to have a textbook definition of what's a doctrine and what's a policy, because all doctrines have the ability to change in the future. Right. And then John DeLynn is going to very nicely have Timber eat his lunch over that comment, which makes me really think that that's what Cardin was thinking. That's why he took the position he took that doctrines do change. I mean, that has has its own problems, obviously. Doctrines change. Why are we listening to anything that they're calling doctrine today when it can change tomorrow? But he wanted to avoid what happened to Timber is what I think happened. I think that's what he was doing. I have to push back because I think there's there's some things that are misconstrued as doctrine that are policies, um, and we 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 see that as the church. Which thing? That, which thing that I just said was a misconstruction? Uh, blacks uh, not receiving the priesthood. Isn't that just a fact? Well, no, but you're saying it was a doctrine that changed. Well, the first presidency, the the prophet and the first and second counselor prior to 1978, on multiple occasions mm-hmm. signed statements saying that it was doctrine that that black people could not be members in full standing. That's the first presidency in the 1940s and 50s. Yeah, but that was a corruption of the... Joseph Smith baptized freemen. He had a presidential platform based upon abolition. The Mormon church was basically an abolitionist entity that the government feared in the West for its first 50 years. The fact that it adopted some bad ideas of the curse of Cain because of Protestant influence coming from the South, especially when Parley P. Pratt returned as a missionary from the South, and the pressures put on Brigham Young as a governor of the state of Deseret, that is that is an abuse of history. But but, it, but it's your prophets, the people that you believe claim spoke to God and that I used to believe, they're the ones signing these statements. It's David O. McKay. It's it's people that you sustain as prophets, seers, and revelators. So how do you know when they're speaking as a man? How do you when That's they're when the they're excluding question. entire race of people from full participation? How do you know they're speaking for God or speaking for themselves? Until 
the social. I, I answered that right at the beginning of this whole uh, this whole entire prompt. Okay, the abuse didn't answer history, it well. No, no, the abuse of history that was going on here was Cardin. I'm not sure he said anything that was correct in what he talked about. He talks about the Mormons being abolitionists. Well, I think that maybe they were seen as abolitionists in Missouri that caused a lot of problem. But then he goes out there to the state of Deseret, you know, the Utah Territory, and Brigham Young being the governor, and then being feared by the federal government because they're so abolitionists that Brigham Young got admitted uh, the territory as a slave territory. Brigham Young had the state of Deseret entered into the Union as a territory, not before it's Utah in a state, as a slave territory. That's how abolitionists they were. And to talk about the federal government being scared of them because they're so abolitionist, I mean, I know he's trying to up in the table and throw the pieces all over the floor again. I want to come back to that image because that's what he's doing. He is not addressing the question. And what happened was, right before he started running away, he actually said something himself that he regretted having said, and that's when he starts running away. Did you catch what he said, Bill? No, no. What was it? That was a corruption. Yeah, corruption of the truth. That was a corruption because blacks couldn't have the priesthood. Excuse me. You know, as, I don't care if you got leukemia brain or not. You can figure out what's going to be the response to that. So what you're was the great that apostasy? your church was corrupted for over 125 years, and you're saying it's not corrupt today? On what basis do you make that distinction, Mr. Ellis? What was what was the great apostasy? Was it, it a corruption of yes. the doctrines of the true church from Christ uh, Christ day? Mm-hmm. Um, he says a corruption of the truth. And you know, first off, Timber seemed to be not quite up to date on the full scope of Mormon history. He seemed unfamiliar with the Dr. Uh, Lowry Nelson letters to the first presidency. He also seems unfamiliar with both the uh, 1949 first presidency statement as well as statements made throughout the church's history by its prophets, seers, and revelators. Cardin comes in and tries to save the day by saying that everything the church has done from 1852 to 1978 was wrong. The prophets, seers, and revelators, all 15 men, generation after generation after generation, seemed inept at getting the mind and will of God, but continued to lead the church somehow without getting very crucial, important things right, and had in fact corrupted the early teachings of Joseph Smith and the church. What he just described was the great apostasy. Yes. And that's why as soon as that word corruption came out of his mouth, I don't I don't think he even bit off on the final in. He no. was often running on something else. It's just like, oh, crap, I'm in a tight spot. Let me blabber for a while, and maybe no one will notice. And Mormons, you know, the church has given members permission to articulate this issue as if the things that the critics are calling the doctrines of the past were never doctrines. They were only policies. Mm -hmm. But if prophets, seers, and revelators, all 15 men, generation after generation, are adamant that something is a doctrine, only to have it years later become a disavowed policy, then I think Mormons would have to sort of grasp that 
uh, it's going to be impossible to ever figure out what is really true. In other words, as you and I covered the Adam God uh, topic, Mormonism Live, I think it was in season, I'll say season one, but in our first year of doing Mormonism Live. The argument there uh, is that Brigham Young knew by the Holy Ghost that Adam was Heavenly Father. And he also told us that the members of the church also knew by the Spirit that what he was teaching was true. In the same way that George Albert Smith, uh, David O. McKay, all the leaders that came before them knew by the Spirit that people of color were not able to have the priesthood or go to the temple, and that was the doctrine of the church. It wasn't a policy, as you pointed out. That's their words, not ours. It, it seems such a silly thing uh, to then call that a policy when I'm only using the prophet's words. Like I, I'm not creating some new definition. You're the one doing that, Timber. You're mm-hmm. the one doing that, Cardin. If I place my trust, if I want to be a believing Mormon and place my trust in prophets, seers, and revelators, then I have to know they're at least right more often than a broken watch. Yeah. Yeah, good point. So I just think that this is another example of why it is that the Mormons are getting their asses kicked in this debate. It's 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 pathetic. And I think they would have done a better job if they had just told the truth about what Mormonism really is so that they can defend their church instead of some construction that they have imagined out of their own mind. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting, by the way, RFM, the church, Gordon B. Hinckley, took every opportunity to get in front of a camera. It was prior, you know, it wasn't quite, the internet wasn't quite up and running. Mm -hmm. You really lived in a world where if there was your narrative and the critics narrative, you really could sort of keep your narrative in front of people and and sort of keep the critics narrative away. And Gordon B. Hinckley stepped in front of a camera every chance he got. But the modern moment Mormon leadership wants nothing to do with open questions. They've learned their lessons from Elder Holland going on the British broadcasting uh, uh, BBC uh, network. Uh, You've got other instances where the church has tried to speak publicly and it ends up having to field questions it doesn't want. So it has stepped away from that arena altogether, essentially. Every once in a while they try it again and usually it fails. I think the church makes a good move in doing that because if they didn't, this is what they would run into. They would have to field questions and then look stupid answering them, which is exactly what Cardin looks like when he tries to present a Mormonism that nobody has any clue is is real. Right. And everybody who's on the other side of that V, the verses, the Mormons versus the ex-Mormons, they know from their own experience that he's spouting nonsense and that he's trying to gaslight them. It's like, don't kid a kidder. Don't try and, you know, tell a Mormon what Mormonism is unless you're going to really be true about it. Yeah. Did you see the look on Kwaku's face when Cardin was answering those questions? It was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> he was dismayed at Cardin's answers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Should we play the next one? Should we let Kwaku answer? This? I, I think, the, I think the, the human ego speaks when we want our environment and the bubble we're we're in, because everyone lives in a bubble. We don't want that bubble to change, no matter what. Human beings are prideful, human beings have ego, everyone does. I look at some of the things our church leaders said, David O'McKay, right? Brigham Young, Joseph Fielding Smith. I know they weren't 
you know, singing Kumbaya with black people. I get that, you know, I totally get that. But at the same time, I understand that people are also products of their environment. And I don't wanna condemn someone who's not here to defend themselves. And in the same way, a hundred years from now, someone will look at us and they'll say, oh my gosh, I, I, I can't believe you guys were using your, your, your cobalt iPhones built by child slaves. Please don't deny my humanity a hundred years from now. No, Kwaku, that's a, that's a, a nonsense argument, okay? And once again, he wants to do the same thing about me, me. Don't make me the victim, you know? Don't blame me in a hundred years for the things I did. You know that's not the issue, Kwaku. You know that's not. Now, what you say is true. Obviously, the prophets are a products of their environment, but that's not the Mormon position. You're talking about something other than Mormonism. Now, right now, you're talking about reality. So, of course, you're going to win it on reality. The problem is the real reality doesn't match Mormonism. What Mormonism is, is that God speaks to his prophets and tells them what it is God wants them to do. God is not bound by the culture in which the prophet was raised and in which the prophet lives. God can tell the prophet. God, wasn't it Sherry too who talked about prophets seeing around corners? Kwaku's saying they can't see, you know, they can't see their own hand in front of them because they're so blinded by their culture. At which point the question has to come up, what the heck do we need prophets for then? If they are bound by their own culture, and God can't seem to get the message through to them to see beyond their culture, then what is the point of having a person that we call a prophet and that Mormons say they believe speaks to God at the head of the church? If we listed out what, what we could all sort of collectively agree are the most important doctrines throughout the history of the church, and then lay out how prophets have gotten them terribly wrong and had to abandon or reverse doctrines entirely. Combine that with the idea that what he just said is that prophets' egos get in the way. He, Kwaku was saying that it, because prophets are humans, they have ego, their ego gets in the way, and they can be terribly wrong. As you pointed out, RFM, if prophets are terribly wrong on almost everything because their egos get in the way, then might I be better off to go do something else with my time than to base my salvation on things today that future prophets will acknowledge that current prophets' ego got in the way and they got terribly wrong? Exactly. Mormons believe that the prophets lead people to salvation because of their direct connection with God. What Quaku has described, and I think accurately, is that prophets are actually impediments to progress, impediments to salvation. Wouldn't it be great if we had somebody at the head of the church that God spoke to so we could get the real scoop on things, untethered from, uh, from culture and prejudice and bias? That's what Mormonism teaches. That's not what Quaku is defending. Yeah, I've said this before. In a church led by prophets, seers, and revelators, we know less and less with every coming day. Yeah, I stole that from you and ripped on it in my last Mormon Sunday School, by the way. I love it. Good. I'm glad you did. 
What about the families that lost so many sons and daughters to suicide because of that never changing doctrine of specific eternal families? You cannot go to the celestial kingdom because you believe in this. We'll be able to visit you every now and again. We'll have a little family reunion, that kind of thing, but you just can't come in and visit us up there. If that changes, the, the LDS church is, I mean, they tried to do a little change a in 2015 where they were like, you know, SIPA, children of, you know, same sex households can't get baptized. And that was changed okay. real quick. Again, and my parents, and my parents, but, but, but we're, we're talking about Would you want me to answer the question? Or, okay. Yeah. Oh, definitely. So first off, individually, just man to man, friend to friend. If, well, hopefully we'll become friends. And hopefully you'll um, become a man. If somebody actually said that to you, what you just articulated right there, that is not Christ's doctrine applied through Christ-like love. There's three or four things that are wrong with what has happened to you guys if you guys are indeed regurgitating the story the way it happens, and I believe you. So on the individual level, I want to say, I, I, I see you, I, I validate what you've gone through, and my first initial reaction would be first to very quickly delineate between the church with a little C and a church with a big C. I will tell you the church with a big C and its codified doctrines is loving to all, gives an, uh, an eternal, immeasurable value to every soul and, and views you first as a child of God, not as a gay man, not as an ex-husband to a woman or a current husband to a man. It sees you as, as, as who you are. Which with is not that gay. Said, we all have really cringy, awkward friends who've said incorrect, sometimes maybe even cruel things to LGBTQ members, justified by false conceptions of God or misinterpretations of doctrine. And their bigotry, they have tried to couch in religious writ or religious culture, and that is wrong simultaneously. If we're talking about, is it okay that doctrine changes? Yes. When I, think the more, I think the more that Cardin talks, uh, the more the ex-Mormon team wins. When he said cringy, awkward friends, I would I wanted to retaliate <laughs> and say, by that you mean cringy, awkward prophets. Because oh, I thought you were going to say, have you looked in a mirror lately, Cardin? Well, he definitely looks cringy. But cringy, awkward friends, it's him putting the blame on the weird guy that's the high priest in your ward who says the stupidest stuff. Mm -hmm. But what he wants to do is distance that statement from the actual source of where that stuff came from, which yeah. are the cringy, awkward prophets. Exactly. And this is another standard tactic, and it's used frequently by apologists, both neo-apologists and more standard type apologists like Cardinalis, is what the, what the leaders have taught is not what the leaders have taught. It's what the members have misunderstood the leaders to be teaching. The leaders taught that if you were a child and you had one parent who was in a gay marriage, you could not be blessed, you could not be baptized. If you were a boy, you couldn't receive the priesthood. If you were a girl, you couldn't receive the priesthood either. And you couldn't even go on a mission or receive the priesthood if you're a boy until after you had attained the age of 18 and publicly disavowed the offending parent's lifestyle. That was in 2015. That's less than 10 years ago. Somebody said, I don't know if it was Cardinal, I don't know if it was Timber. Oh, that wasn't, that was a policy. No, it was not. It was called revelation. It was claimed to be revelation. 
by President Russell M. Nelson himself. And then three and a half years later, they reversed it. And that was revelation as well. Although President Nelson at least had the good sense not to say it himself. Again, he had President Oaks say it for him. So this is the situation, is he got the leaders who are teaching the members by their example, by revelation from God, so-called, and what they claim, that LGBTQ people are less than in the church. And then Cardin glosses over that, pretends that doesn't even happen, and blames it on cringy members of the church who've misunderstood what the leaders have said. No, the problem isn't the cringy members of the church who've misunderstood what the leaders have said. It's the vast number almost all of the TBMs, the true believing Mormons, who completely perfectly well understand what it is the leaders have told them because they are a product of the leader's teaching. Yeah. he Cardin sort of acknowledges that the church got it wrong, that they, on a, a limited number of occasions, three or four, I think was the number he said, on a, on a few occasions, caused some harm. You know, hey, if I... You know, if you tell the story the way it is, and I trust you that your version of events that you'd tell it accurately, we got some things wrong, basically. Regurgitating. Yes. But when you start to dismiss the amount of harm that's been done, again, what kind of harm did prophets being wrong on people of color lead to? What kind of harm did prophets... going into detail about what were the causes of homosexuality and being wrong, what did that harm lead to? What did prophets uh, being wrong about suicide being a sin, what kind of harm did that lead to? When you taught that handicapped people, uh, the physically challenged, I say handicapped because that's the words they use. When When the physically challenged, mentally challenged folks the reasoning given that they were less valiant in the pre-mortal existence that used to be taught. What kind of harm does that do? When, when you ask members of the church to trust you as an authority who speaks directly to God and you get everything wrong and the things you get wrong marginalize people to the extreme, we can't just dismiss that harm out of hand. We have to sit and we have to, you know, for the, believer side, we have to talk calmly through acknowledging how much of that harm has actually occurred. We can't just get a flippant response, acknowledge two or three things, and move on as if as if a few harmful things is going to be done anywhere. The amount of harm, back to John's original answer about how you measure what is a cult or high-demand fundamentalist religion, the harm done, not only by prophets getting it wrong, but also by telling you that they always get it right, is is a magnitude that no human being will ever be able to comprehend. What you said helped me crystallize what it was Cardin was doing earlier. He's able, he feels he's able to dismiss all the harm done by the church's stance on LGBTQ issues by saying he has leukemia. That's that's the work that he wants that to do in the conversation. He's able to gloss it all over by equating it to the fact that he has leukemia, and therefore he's trying to present that as an adequate response to all the harm that's done to people in the church, whatever their orientation might be, especially LGBTQ people today and black people formerly. Yeah, but there's a big difference between 
just the chaos of the universe, people being born without an arm, people getting cancer when when that's the last thing in the world uh, you would want that person to have. And human beings claiming to be the voice of God, telling you to trust them explicitly, telling you that their answers are the only answers, telling you that they see around corners and they only teach the truth. Mm. When in reality, self-admitted by Cardin and Kwaku, they have made a whole host of mistakes and we should not, a human being should not place the kind of trust in Mormon prophets that Mormon prophets require from its members. Very good. Very good. Let me just clarify something I said before I stumbled a bit. I was talking about the harm that the church does to LGBTQ people. And I said, and regardless of orientation, right? What I meant by that was, yeah, there's harm done to lots of people in the church. I'm not comparing it, but I'm just saying, yeah, there's harm done to straight people in the church as well. It's not of the magnitude necessarily, but like that that laurel that we talked about at the beginning of the episode that was referred to by President Nelson. Harm was being done to her, and it may take her a while to recognize that, but I expect that she will, and once she does, she's not going to be happy about it. Yeah, she can't be looking back now and grateful that she skipped on this really important moment in her life to give a non-important thing that anyone could have given uh, at church. That yeah, seems she so... got mentioned in a general conference talk by the yeah. prophet, so... I guess that has its own reward. Yeah, that'll hold you over for a little while. Yeah. Well, that's all of the clips that we had set aside. Um, what a great... We're done uh, already? We are. That's it. That went by faster than I thought it would. I hope it does for the audience as well. Yeah. It doesn't quite look like uh, John there, but it looked enough like him when I, I gave AI art a picture of John and said, you know, create uh, an animated image of him. Uh, it did other ones that were a little bit better, but they all came with glasses, and it was kind of hard to get AI to leave glasses off, even though the pictures I supplied didn't have glasses on them. Um, it looks like uh, Kwaku's a little young in that picture, but I, I sort of like that. Yeah, it's a very nice, nice, nice picture of everybody, I think. So yeah. I think that was very, well, Cardin, eh, it's not so bad. So uh, I like the graphic. I think you do a great job with your AI. With the thumbnails, the only thing I know about AI is what it stands for. Yeah, artificial intelligence. There we go. And I had a lot of fun going over this with you. Uh, I think this was a wonderful event. I would like to see more of them, but it is very hard to find people from the church who will come out and publicly defend the church. And so they have to cast about and get people like Cardin on the show. And we see what that leads to. Yeah, it looks like only the Jacob Hansons and the Cardinalises and the Quakus will stand up and at least engage, even though they're also obfuscating and being deceptive in how they do it. But at least they stand up. Yes, and I did want to say that. I did want to say that. Um, for all the Stephen Smoots out there who are absolutely chicken and terrified at the thought of appearing publicly with someone who is a critic of the church and actually having an honest toe-to-toe discussion slash debate with them. Stephen Smoot will never do that. All he will do is carp from a corner or type it, type out his little responses in the basement of his mother's house. You know, yeah. that's all he does. And Dan Peterson is like this. And so many people are like this. 
So I want to give Kwaku and Carden and the other two people, I think it was Bella and um, Timber, Timber, who were on the Mormon side, let's give them credit for being willing to come out and at least make a showing of allegedly defending Mormonism. Although, once again, I don't think that's what they were doing. Do you? How do you think the church felt about this? I mean, the church, one thing the church does care about is how it's perceived in the general public by mass amounts of people. And a lot of people watched this. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot more people were reached by this than most people are reached by uh, a Mormon message somewhere. It's got over half a million views Yeah. right now. This is more than general conference. Do you think the church is proud of how this went? I have no idea. But can I say something to the church? You apostles, I hope you're paying attention. You should be ashamed of yourself. Why aren't you there representing your church that you are the leaders of and have an audience of over half a million? Believe me, it'd be over a million if you were there. Mm -hmm. Why aren't you there? Why are you cowering in your ivory towers and not coming out and talking about the truth that you claim is from God? Why aren't you doing that? And the reason why is because you don't have faith either. You don't have the faith of Abinadi in the Book of Mormon. You don't have the faith of any prophet who we read about in the scriptures is going out and they are talking about the revelations they've received publicly. They're not ashamed of it. It's Paul who says in First Romans, isn't it? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All the apostles are obviously ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because they refuse to go out and talk about it publicly. And all they will do is arrange uh, forums like General Conference where they can go out and read a script, which may or may not have been even written by them. And they do not subject themselves to any kind of follow-up questions. What kind of prophet is that? What kind of apostle is that? And I repeat, you should all be ashamed of yourself because you are not apostles of Jesus Christ, at least not the kind I read about in the New Testament and in the Book of Mormon, for that matter. Yeah, Russell M. Nelson, you, my friend, are no Gordon Hinckley. That's right. Oh, that's going to stick in his craw. Yeah. Hear that? President Nelson, I know Gordon B. Hinckley. I worked with Gordon B. Hinckley. You, sir, are no Gordon B. Hinckley. (laughs) All right. Well, there's another episode of Mormonism Live. Any last words from you, RFM? Yes, happy Valentine's Day. I can't even say the name of the the holiday right. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. I will be with you on Valentine's Day evening here in this premiere and also in the live chat. And I just hope that we'll all get together and revel in the love that is showered upon us all through Mormonism Live. Awesome. Have a great night, RFM. Thanks, you too. Mormonism Live, better than touching your own little factory.